Today, we're talking about the state of local media in St. Louis, and we're particularly interested in how print journalism is doing. We've got an all-star panel joining us today. That includes Gilbert Bylon, the editor of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and Jeanette Cooperman, a longtime writer at St. Louis Magazine, and former Alderman Antonio French. There is so much to talk about. But before we get to our panel, my first guest is here to provide some context. You might think St. Louis has always been a one-newspaper town, or that the only real rival to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch was the St. Louis Globe Democrat. Well, fortunately, my first guest has a memory that's longer than yours and a greater knowledge of media history. Frank Absher is the executive director of the St. Louis Media History Foundation. He's also a radio veteran. And he's joining us today to remind us where we came from and how we got to this point. So, Frank Absher, welcome to the program. They would start out a call-in show with, hello, is that you're talking to me? Am I on the air? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a great opening there. I can tell you're a pro. Now, you worked at KMOX during yes. what sounds like some glorious years. Um, when were you there, and, and what was that like? 1979 through 1983, it was radio heaven in the sense that it was the best of the best. It was what you dreamed of when you were at the one-horse town in the thousand-watt daytime stations, which is where I started. And it was, of course, uh, the best that CBS could buy. So a lot can be said for that. But, of course, everything's changed, and that's why we're here. Because if you look back at history, way back, um, you'll see how journalism has evolved over the years, and the methods of the delivery of journalism have also evolved. And as you and I were talking yesterday, you mentioned just how many newspapers used to be in St. Louis. Give Mm -hmm. us a sense of of how big this media stratosphere was. I have a listing on our St. Louis Media History website of every publication that has been in St. Louis, and there are thousands. I am talking about trade journals, medical journals. Um, There were black newspapers, Jewish newspapers, Catholic, Lutheran, agriculture, Communist newspapers, entertainment publications, political papers, arts papers, business newspapers, and of course, just your regular everyday, we're delivering the information to your newspapers. And a lot of foreign language newspapers, too. I mean, what kind of range was Um, was there with that? Korean. I'm reading from my list because otherwise I'd forget. Uh, Swedish newspapers, Bosnian, Czechoslovakian, Spanish, Italian, French, German That's the ones that I came up with off the top of my head. That's a big range. Mm -hmm. So going back to those years you were at KMOX, what was the competition like to break news at that point? There was no breaking news competition because let's go back a few more years to when radio really came into its own in in terms of delivering news. That would have been the late 1930s. Before then, you heard no news on the radio, or if there were news, they would be reading it from the newspaper. But as things started to heat up in Europe and Edward R. Murrow and his assemblage started broadcasting information about what was going on in the rest of the world, news became an integral part of radio. And because there was no delay, as there is with print media, people started relying more on radio for breaking information, and print media for detailed information. So it was almost like radio played the role of the Internet today. You could right. You could get the updates in real time. The difference between radio then and the Internet now is that people came to rely on and depend on trusted voices, mm-hmm. the Murrows of the world, and, and 
put stock in and faith in their reports. Now on the internet, you don't know who it is. Mm -hmm. And so you don't know whether you can trust it. When did we see radio start to scale back its newsroom, this idea of having so many reporters out there in the field? The uh, Telecommunications Act, I believe it was 1996, deregulated radio. Up until that point, radio had to prove, if it could get its license, it had to prove that it was serving in the public interest. And that involved news broadcasts as well. Many of the radio stations in those days would simply rip and read. They would take the news off of the teletype, walk into the studio, and read a few headlines. But there were stations all over the country that had full news departments. And I'll go back to the 1960s here in St. Louis. There was a radio station, KXOK, that was rock and roll, that was aimed at the teenager. They had a full news department of five or six reporters, and they had news broadcasts every hour. At the music station? Yes, absolutely. WIL, the competition, did the same thing. So they kept you informed, and they were constantly competing. They would give out money for the best news tips. It became sort of a competition that resulted in better product. And you said that started to change because of an FCC decision? No, it was a, it was a government decision that came down from Congress that deregulated what radio had to do. Radio had to prove up until that point, as did television, in order to get their licenses from the federal government, that they were serving the community. They were doing it with public service announcements. They were doing it with community programming, and they were doing it with news broadcasts. And that changed then. That's all gone. And at that point, people could just do what they wanted, just do strictly music. And they could also be quite opinionated. And uh, that led us to where we are today, because Back then, if you were opinionated, you had to offer equal opportunity to the other side to express its opinion. You couldn't just be the right-wing radio no, station. No, you had to have both sides. It's interesting in terms of this opinion journalism. Um, our producer, Evie Hemphill, talked last week to Sylvester Brown. He's a St. Louis native. He started his own print publication in the 1980s. That's a monthly that was called Take 5 Magazine. He went on to be a columnist at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and after that, he went to work in book publishing. Most recently, in 2019, he published a book called When We Listen, based on his work with young people through the Sweet Potato Project. It's a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. And he recalled the 80s and 90s as the golden years for print as well. Here's what he said about that. When I came into business, I started my publication in 1987. And it was a wonderful time for that because we had um, several black newspapers, the American, you had the Sentinel, and you had um, the Argus. But you also had the Riverfront Times, which is very liberal, uh, in-your-face, you know, open publication. So it was us against, like, the more conservative publication, like the Post-Dispatch and, and other uh, mainstream media. It was a wonderful time uh, because you, what you had on the air and in print was authentic black thought with independent uh, reporters and journalists. It even infiltrated uh, radio. Uh, WGNU, a station on the AM dial, that almost had 24-7 uh, talk shows. And half of them, if not more, were African-American, African-American hosts, editors, blah, blah, blah. Um, they were even infiltrating major uh, television news stations because 
once you read about it and you got those opinions, you just couldn't tell your story from the white perspective because it was in print. And so they had to go to these journalists and go to, and, and at least touch on these issues. Even Channel 9 would host their town hall meetings with African-American hosts and African-American issues. So the 90s were really in a, a wonderful, eclectic time. What happened was, in the early 2000s, the full force of the Internet came into play. What these major news organizations found out was that there was gold in those conservative hills. If you recall at that time, newspapers were going out of business, they were going bankrupt, they were they were cutting their staff, they were offering all these buyouts, because it was desperate, it was desperate times. But what they found out was, because the internet and cable news programs, that there was dollars, money, millions and millions of dollars of conservative viewers, conservative readers. And that's Sylvester Brown, former St. Louis Post-Dispatch columnist. He sees a real decline in black voices coinciding with the rise of conservative outlets, things like Fox News and and some of those radio stations that that you talked about. Um, But, Frank, I'm thinking about Take 5 magazine and and these publications that have sort of had their moment in St. Louis and and then gone away. And I know that both preserving them and honoring the people who've worked there, that's part of your work. What do you see as the role of the St. Louis Media History Foundation? Exactly that, to preserve so that people now can see what came before. For example, in St. Louis in 1923 and 1924, there were five Klan newspapers being published every week. Things they, they weren't hiding behind anything. It was the Missouri Fiery Cross, the Missouri Klan Courier. <laughs> That's the crazy to think about. Yes, yes. so those, those voices were out there, and we want to make sure that we don't lose track of the fact that that existed. That's part of us. Sociologists can look at these records that we have and determine what was going on in St. Louis in the 1960s by listening to the radio we have, looking at the newspapers that are on microfilm and what have you, and saying, this is what was important to the people. 35, 40, 50 years from now, they'll look back and say, oh, look at this. They had this this infestation coming across the ocean from China, and look at all the things that closed down. That's what we're doing. We are preserving what came before. And at the same time, I know you're kind of a student of this history, and, oh, and you've it. you've paid a lot of attention to the disruption of the radio industry. I'm wondering, with the disruption currently that's going on in print, does this kind of disruption present new opportunities? You know what? I'm going to be interested in listening to your panel because these folks are on the cutting edge, and they are. you've got a very good group of people here. If you look back at the history of radio, Radio was declared dead in 1950 Hmm. because all of the stars from radio, the Jack Bennys, the Gracie Allen and George Burns, they migrated from radio to television. And all of these shows that people listened to on the radio were going away. Radio was dead. Nobody was going to listen. So they reinvented themselves. They came up with a new product to give to the public that the public said, we didn't know we liked that. They listen to disc jockeys. They listen to homemaker shows. And because of that reinvestment or or reinvention, so to speak, radio bought another 50 years of life Hmm. without worrying about what tomorrow might bring. This is what print has to do now. Print has to look back and say, okay, we've got the Internet delivering information. We've got all this stuff going on around us that's already giving people those things what can we present to people that they will pay for, that they will want? They have to make sure that they've got a product that people will buy 
and we don't know what that product is right now. But if, if print is to survive, they have to reinvent themselves now. And that's a challenge from Frank Absher of the St. Louis Media History Foundation. So, Frank, thank you so much for joining us today. Love it. Love it. We need to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to sit down with that panel that Frank is so excited to hear from. And I know I am, too. So this is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. Welcome back. Our topic today is the state of local journalism, and I can't think of a better panel to discuss it with us than the one that we have here. First, we've got Gilbert Bailon. He's the editor of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Gilbert, welcome to the show. Thank you. And we're also joined by Jeanette Cooperman. She was a longtime staff writer at St. Louis Magazine, and before that, a longtime writer at the Riverfront Times. And she recently left St. Louis Magazine to write essays for The Common Reader. That's a publication of Washington University. Jeanette, welcome to the show. Thank you. And our final guest today is Antonio French. He's a former St. Louis alderman and mayoral candidate who found himself covering the protests in Ferguson six years ago using Vine and Twitter. And now he's started a pair of print newspapers. So Oh, Antonio, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Now, Gilbert, I want to start with you. Um, with coronavirus and all the economic uncertainty everywhere in the world right now, it does make me a little bit worried about um, about the media. I know we're all reliant on advertising dollars um, and people having events, wanting to promote them. What are you thinking as you look at these next few weeks um, and the landscape that we're dealing with economically here? From a news standpoint, this is a critical time for all forms of media to give people good information. I mean, just this morning we wrote that uh, – or posted that Mercy was opening a, a drive-through uh, clinic for it. They can be testing. We, you know, we also have Sam Page, the county executive, announcing that 250 people can't gather in the county. This kind of information is really vital. Business-wise, it's going to be an economic drain on the entire – country, much Mm -hmm. less St. Louis region. And it's really unknown from that standpoint. But as far as journalists, I think our role is no more important now than ever before, because people are looking for that credible information. It seems like one of these times where um, page views are going to be through the roof. People are going to be snapping up copies of the newspaper at the same time that advertisers might be feeling um, worry and maybe not wanting to double down. Are are you worried about that equation? Well, we're worried about it. But I think if we do our job, and we, we have a lot of traffic online. I mean, I know people think of the Post-Dispatch as print. We've been around since 1878. That's true, but we're way more than that. And so we're able to be on people's phones, iPads, our e-edition, other things where we can get information in real time. And that gives us an advantage to to fill that gap. But with the advertising, yeah, we're concerned about I think everybody is who's in the media business right now because it's unknown. Antonio, as a newer publication, uh, much newer, (laughs) when you look at the difference between the 1870s and and a year and a half ago, um, how is the coronavirus news affecting your plan? Yeah, so I I approach it a little differently. You know, not only do I lead a newsroom, I also lead a business as the owner of our publications. And so we look at the situation of uncertainty uh, in a different light. And so we've made the decision and uh, for us to halt the publication, the print publication of the North Sider and the South Sider for two weeks uh, till we can assess the situation. You know, we have the largest weekly circulation, combined weekly circulation of any weekly 50,000 papers in the city. And uh, what we know is that it's going to be a little harder to 
get those 50,000 papers picked up off the racks next week as compared to last week. Just Because people won't be out and about. Many of our places that we distribute the paper are closed. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of the places that uh, we would normally distribute lots of papers are seeing less traffic, are going to have to see less traffic. So we're going to assess the situation. We'll continue to publish all our stories on our website, metrostl.com. Um, but we are taking the next two weeks to assess the uh, the print so that's a that's a scary step to have to take. Are you going to be able to make the payroll for your staff without the print revenue coming in? Yeah, so all our staff will continue to work, uh, continue to be paid, continue to write their stories daily on MetroSTL.com, uh, continue to do their work. Um, but we will be assessing over the next two weeks, you know, whether we are shifting more to online uh, as this crisis kind of works its way out uh, or if there is still a need for, uh, as the place is open, reopened in the city, for us to have our publications on those newsstands. Okay, so a suspension of that print edition. For two weeks. Yeah. Now, Jeanette, I know you're not on the business side of things, um, and I bet right now that, that feels good not it's to be a relief. Yes. <laughs> is it a relief to be out of the for-profit journalism model now working for this uh, this book of essays at, at Washington University? It's a huge relief. It feels, yeah, honestly, it is. It feels like you can just focus on the ideas and what you're writing and not have to worry about how it will strike somebody. I know with social media, it got too easy to groan over the fact that our highest clicks were for things like how to wear leggings, you know, and it's like, how much do you take that feedback to heart? You know, we could do a whole publication on the blow dry bar. Um, Just giving the people what they want. So it was like, learn it, realize it, ignore it. And it was a hard balance. And so now that you're at this point where you can kind of write about whatever you want to write about, um, is that hard with something like the coronavirus that's taking up so much oxygen in the room right now? Is it hard to even think about anything else? Yeah, I've been going back and forth because I do three shorter pieces a week. And I thought it looks a little surreal to write about something different. By the same token, we need a little relief. And so it's a tightrope there. The long piece I'm working on is on contagion. But it's on different kinds of contagion, you know, moral contagion, emotional Mm. contagion. Contagion is something that, you know, becomes its own phenomenon, you know, the contagion of fear. So I'm trying to look at other aspects of it because we can't – we'll go crazy if we just worry about distancing and viruses and – yeah, we'll lose our minds. Gilbert, I'm wondering how you manage that with your newsroom. You've got, um, I imagine, still the biggest newsroom in town, and yet there's a lot of people um, on the sports beat. All these sports games are now suspended. Do you move those guys over to news coverage and say, you're on the coronavirus beat? How are you handling that? Well, right now they're doing a lot of coronavirus-related coverage. We have people in Jupiter with the Cardinals. We had people preparing to cover the blues. It's also in our arts and entertainment, too. So concerts, people who, well, anything that of, of large groups, which are many activities. It's also going to affect restaurants, dining, other parts. So what we're doing, we're, we're like everybody else trying to gather this, but what we're trying to do is make sure we have information that people can use. It's really important. We have lists of closing. That sounds very basic, but it's information that's really very popular. Can I go places? Um, we had, you know, can I go to the fish fry? There are things that people have very practical, but there's really health things. What's, what's open? What should I go to? So we're looking at it from a consumer standpoint, um, but we'll have to assess this. We're, right now, the, the leagues don't even know. So yeah. They know that's a couple weeks. Is opening day going to happen? We don't know. So we're going to play it by ear. But right now, it's affecting the leagues and the athletes and the entertainers and other people. So we're, we're still covering that, but we'll have to reassess. 
If you're listening to this conversation, we want to hear from you, and and we're going to move on from this coronavirus question, and that's where we want to uh, center our listeners here. We want to know, what do you think the St. Louis media does a good job of covering, and where do we fall short? You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air, or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. And Tony, I want to talk to you just a bit about your journey. You were a St. Louis alderman, um, and you started going to Ferguson and documenting what was happening there in real time. You were using things like Twitter and Vine. Was that in part because you felt like the, the mainstream media was missing the story? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, wh- what I know was that, um, is that you weren't really going to find out, I felt, what was actually happening uh, just from the mainstream media. And so it did not occur. The incident didn't occur very far away from my home. So I went down the street, <laughs> down West Florissant into Ferguson. Uh, to find out what was happening myself. And then what I saw was very different than what was being reported at the time. And so I started tweeting. And primarily my my first audience during that was local reporters, hoping that they would see it and then come down and cover it. And then, you know, it kind of took off from there. And where you felt like you weren't seeing what was really going on, do you think part of that was that the media here is, frankly, so white? Yeah, you know, a lot has changed um, over the last six years. I mean, I think most of the newsrooms in town are a little bit more intentional about trying to have, you know, coverage that is more reflective. But if you go back to 2014, most of the news coverage in the city, I felt, was very much top-down, very much looking at incidents that occur in the black community from a largely white perspective. Uh, And that is how that that story started to be reported. Um, actually, you know, I, I've said this before. The first, the first report I got on this incident was a tweet from the Post Dispatch uh, Twitter account, and the headline said, um, "Police shooting sparks mob reaction." And uh, when I read the story, the story actually was a better written story than the headline suggested. And so my first tweet regarding Ferguson was a tweet to the Post-Dispatch saying, mob, uh, you could have just as easily said community. And so then I left and went to go see what was happening to myself. Gilbert, um, it seems, I guess I would be skeptical that your social media team would use that word today, the idea of a mob, um, if, if a protest had gathered on the street. Do you feel like people are covering things in a different way? that Ferguson was a wake-up call for all of us, that um, we need to think about these things so carefully and, and words like that. I think the staff does cover things differently, and we're better sourced, to Antonio's point. I think we have people in the community. Now, are we as well-sourced as we should be? That's a work in progress. Things change. Communities change. And there are multiple communities that we cover. We're covering 3 million people, 12 counties, 2 states. So do we know everything in every place? No. Uh, but we are more conscious about that in some of our reporting with the ticket, you know, the, the, what was happening in municipal courts, things like that, that we kind of knew about, but we really dug into. Is there more ground to be done? Yes. But I think we're better sourced than we were before. That includes reporters and photographers who spent a lot of time out there. Antonio became a source. I mean, he was not just doing his thing on social media. He became a source for us, among other people, who we still talk to regularly. But it's, you know, it's an evolving piece. It, it's a uh, the communities change, our staff changes, so it is nothing we can say, all right, we've got this down, but we do. We are much more aware of how we're covering many communities and trying to be more sensitive. Jeanette, you and I have both worked at um, smaller newsrooms that try to sort of cover everything, but it's almost impossible when you only have four or five people working there. And, and frankly, in the case of some of the publications you and I have worked for, uh, again, a very white set of journalists. What are the struggles to, to cover a major event, something like Ferguson or something like the coronavirus? 
coronavirus when you've just got a few people? Yeah, you have to pick. You have to narrow down and you have to find a way to bring meaning instead of trying to pretend that you can do 24-7 reporting. You know, you have to know your limits first and then you have to do what people who are doing that kind of reporting can't do. Step back, think about it, find the patterns, go deeper, do a little historical research. The luxury that we usually had was time. Uh, at least a little bit more breathing room. Uh, And so you try and bring some meaning and you pull things together. And sometimes it's a barrage for people to try and follow each little tiny update. And if they can read something all in one palace that forms a narrative, it it lets them reflect a little bit. It's a little bit of a breathing space. The thing that long-form journalism can do. Yes, Antonio, I'm wondering then how that experience of being out there, being a source to people and and breaking news on Twitter, how that led you to say, you know what, I'm going to actually start a print publication. I know you had more of a newsletter before this, but to go whole hog on two newspapers, that's a very unusual thing to do in 2018, 2019. Yeah, it it was not my my first attempt. We uh, uh, did Public Defender many years ago. Uh, I think that I think we were able to publish maybe eight issues of that before we went to the web. Uh, we have published over 120 issues so far on the North Side and the South Sider. So uh, that little practice helped. Uh, but I think there is still a need for uh, print media. And what I know uh, very, very closely, especially from the Ferguson incident, is that you have different audiences from different mediums. So the audience that you know I had on Twitter is very different than the audience I would have on Facebook or in print media. Um, you know, as an alderman, you know, trying to reach my constituents in the 21st Ward in North St. Louis, you know, I can send out a million tweets, but they're not seeing it. Mm-hmm. What they really wanted was something uh, in their hands to be able to flip through and you know, process and ingest at their own speed. Uh, and that's where the Northsiders started 11 years ago was, you know, I felt that there just wasn't a lot of positive news about North St. Louis. You know, if you Google North St. Louis, chances are it was going to be a crime story or a very negative story. So we started the North Sider to just have some positive news about what's happening in our own community uh, from the perspective of people who live in our community. And then you kind of doubled down and said, let's do the South Sider, too. Yeah, the same need existed in South St. Louis. And I think that is the future of local media. Um, you know, I think you're seeing a lot of consolidation on the national level. Uh, and these large mega corporations that own all these different newspapers are just consolidating and consolidating. And if someone wants to know what's happening in Washington, D.C. or New York, they'll go to New York Times or Washington Post. But there are very few sources for what's happening within a mile or two of your home. And I think that's the future of local media and print media here in St. Louis. St. Louis does seem to have an inordinate amount of print publications, if you think about it. I mean, we have, you know, not only is our daily newspaper still daily, which is not true of, of many similarly sized cities, we still have an all weekly, which a lot of people don't have. We have these two food monthlies, which is unheard of in any other city I've lived in. Um, I'm wondering, Gilbert, if you have thoughts on why print continues to do well here in St. Louis compared to maybe some other cities where they've seen such a shrinking of that footprint. I think part of it is the culture here in St. Louis. There's an intense interest in local communities. There's um, People care about the history and what's happening in their neighborhoods, probably more than when I lived in L.A. or Dallas, which are big areas with, you know, six to you know, 18 million people. Here, it's more more of a, I wouldn't say small town, but a feel of a community. Mm-hmm. And because of that, people care about their food and music, and they care about their, their local sports teams and high school sports and things of that nature. As Antonio said, they also care about their neighborhoods. And because our paper is not as big as it used to be as far as staffing, we're not as good at being in 
you know, Kirkwood and South County or Northside or even in the county as we used to be. And because of that, there is an opportunity, and there, and there are people filling the void. I mean, the problem we have with a lot of those is what's the business model? How do you sustain that? It's not that there's interest. People have huge interest. You can look at Nextdoor. You can look at various websites that are geared towards uh, geographic areas. There's a huge interest. The, the interest is where do advertisers want to be and how do you sustain that? Will people want to pay for that information? We're all in that together. We're a little bigger, but some of the small people else also that are smaller publications are also influenced by the same thing is how do I sustain this? But we know there's an, there's an appetite. Yeah, and, you know, our business model, and I, I, you know, I'm not a genius here. I didn't, re, I didn't invent the wheel here. We're, we're just kind of copying what the old suburban journals used to do, mm-hmm. you know, and, and um, you know, people appreciated seeing that publication that was really reflective of their immediate community. Uh, and so we've just kind of replicated that with the North Side and the South Side and some of our future plans. Um, but I think there is a need there, and, I, and so far we've seen advertisers willing to support that because, you know, the advertising cost is cheaper, and they're targeting a more immediate area, you know, versus uh, larger publications or larger, you know, media outlets that are sweeping the region. You get to advertise to a, a smaller group of people. Do you think people are more willing to pay for news these days now that so many national publications are forcing people to pay for their website, that that creates some sort of trickle-down effect? Jeanette, any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, because for years I watched our younger digital natives at the magazines insist that we could not have a paywall because we had to be free, we had to get those clicks. And it felt like all of us kind of undervalued ourselves, to be honest. You know, we were doing really solid journalism, and we were not convinced that it had any monetary value. And we couldn't get the ad revenue online. That could change, is changing. But yeah, I think once that whole shift starts and people begin to say, no, this is worth something, we can all follow along. Before, it was impossible to break off and say, we're going to make you pay when people could get similar information for free from another outlet. Gilbert, have you seen any benefit from the, those attitudes changing? Yes, and, and we are growing our digital subscriptions. It's you know we are a little bit late to the game here in St. Louis, consciously because we felt that having the information out there for free for a long time was important to, to drive traffic. Now we're looking at driving traffic, but also getting money so we can pay for our operations. And because of that, I also I think that the culture has changed. People pay for Netflix and Spotify and Hulu and various other services that they'll pay if it's valuable. I think sometimes that people don't always necessarily think news information, whether it's ours or somebody else, is valuable. Uh, right now, it's extremely valuable. And by the way, we took the paywall down for our coronavirus. Anybody can go to our website and read anything about the coronavirus for free. We would like you to subscribe. We think we're valuable. But if that information is what you're really critically for, you can get that. And other big newspapers have done that mm-hmm. around the country. For this specific Issue. For this topic, yes. Yeah. We're talking to Gilbert Bylon, the editor of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, as well as Jeanette Cooperman of The Common Reader, and Antonio French, a former alderman who recently started the North Sider and the South Sider. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back. We're discussing the state of local journalism in St. Louis with an all-star panel. That includes uh, St. Louis Post-Dispatch editor Gilbert Bylon, Jeanette Cooperman, now of The Common Reader, and Antonio French, uh, the publisher of The North Sider and The South Sider, two new community newspapers. And we want to hear from you. We've got a ton of tweets, and I'll try to get some of those in. But if you want to join our conversation by phone, let us know what do you think the St. Louis media does a good job of covering, and where do we fall short? You can give us a call at 3 
314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Now, we did reach out to a few more voices to get their perspective on this. Um, reached out to the St. Louis American, and, and they were not interested in being part of this conversation. But we did talk to Liz Miller, who's the former editor of Feast magazine and now the managing editor of the Riverfront Times, where she manages their food coverage. And I was very interested in this topic in particular of why food is such a hotly contested beat in this town. If you talk to journalists, it seems to be the area where there is the most competition to break news. And so we wanted to ask her about that. And she said that in part, it's a matter of the St. Louis food scene doing really well, that people are excited to cover this growing scene. There is this, when you're in the food media, almost sort of echo chamber effect where you know, a, a release might come through or you get a tip and you know immediately that at least two other people, if not four to five in town, are either already on it or about to be on it. Um, and I think that, you know, that's because, that's because we know that this is content people want. So um, sometimes, honestly, it feels a little silly to be like, okay, I got to put my head down and really focus on this story about pasta or something. But you do because you want to be early and you want your readers to get the most thorough Um, an accurate story from you. And that's Liz Miller, the managing editor of the Riverfront Times. Um, And she also mentioned that just knowing that people are wildly interested in this food coverage, that that drives a lot of this heated competition. And as a former newspaper editor, I feel like we were very influenced by the Internet in that it allowed us to know what people actually wanted to read, not just what they said they wanted to read. And in some cases, that could be kind of destructive. Um, Jeanette, I'm wondering if there are things where you found yourself covering things or you've seen publications covering things just because there's there's clicks there, there's page views there, as opposed to it necessarily being the best thing to cover. Sure. But I think what you can do is solve it by going at the topic, but then trying to do it in the most substantive way possible. You know, it's people might be really excited about food, but you can really go somewhere with that. It doesn't have to be something shallow and quick take. So uh, the trick is taking that info that comes through social media and then deepening it and expanding it and giving something back that has some substance. At the same time, I also wonder about having a dozen or more food writers in the city and maybe one or two reporters focused on criminal justice reform. Antonio, do you think maybe some of our priorities are out of whack or do we have to give the people what they want to make the the, uh, business model work? Well, you know, I I think that goes to uh, a question of how different publications or operate. Um, you know, many publications are owned by, you know, larger corporations who are very conscious of the, of the bottom line and, and what is selling. Uh, and as you know, you'll get a lot of those stories that aren't very substantive are the ones that will get the most, uh, you know, page views. Um, you know, for us, we've been a print-first publication, and we're building our website, MetroSTL.com, uh, over the next few years. Uh, and so we've really been focusing on neighborhoods, you know, what we hear from people as far as what they want to hear. Uh, and, and read in the paper. Uh, but food coverage and restaurant coverage is really just another form of local news coverage. I mean, that's very much a part of the culture, you know, just as much as uh, prep sports are, you know, what's happening uh, at the church or, you know, or, or down at City Hall. It's just another form of local news where people, you know, see things that they know and they want to know what's happening there. Gilbert, is it hard to um, hard to get people to pay attention to the big serious news or do you find there's a hunger for that as well as the clickbait type stuff? I think there's, there is a hunger for it. And you look at our coverage of Steve Stenger, what happened with that? We look at our coverage of people dying in the county jail. You look at our Were coverage. there big page views for those stories? Oh, 
Yes, but you know we don't really measure it by how, does it get more than the the crime brief or the you know, some restaurant closing. We don't. It's not competitive in that way. We we have and there are also different staffs. We have people devoted. We have a full time dining critic Ian Frobe. We have a, a food writer who cooks food and talks about Dan Neiman. We also have fees, so we put in, in energy into that. We also have full time court reporters. We have police reporters. We have people who look at the criminal justice system. Tony Messenger writes about it a lot. Mm-hmm. So it's not an, it's not one. For the other. It's not give and take, but we think there are different audiences for that. If we're not doing watchdog accountability reporting, we're not doing our job. But that doesn't preclude us from doing food and music and other things that are of local interest. Jeanette? I just wish that there were a measure of the stories that people remember, the stories they talk about. You can look at at least the length of time somebody spends on a page. This just pure click measurement has got to go away. That, that that is not the best metric of no, what actually that works. That really m- makes for a misshapen publication. <laughs> we do look at that. We we have a blended metric. So we, we call it time spent or how much. Mm. So if there's some stories like we'll do a Sunday story that might be lengthier. People spend a lot of time with it. That's very valuable to us. It may not have as many users, but we know the people who got it really are editorials, columns, other things like that. So there are some other metrics besides just – and the reality is the way the economy's changed with on- online is clicks aren't necessarily making us a whole lot of money. I mean, it's important, but it's not the be-all. So, Antonio? You know, one of the things that we focus on in our newsroom, too, is that, you know, we, we are not the, the the paper of record. You know, we don't try to compete with the Post-Dispatch. You know, and as a weekly publication, we look for, you know, if there's a, uh, a story like a Stinger story or, or something, uh, we don't look to break the news. We look to see what we can add to that discussion. Uh, we have a little bit more time, so we try to, you know, have longer form stories that, you know, we can add something to the public discussion. Um, we asked on Twitter um, that very question I've been raising with our callers, which is what does the media do well and, and what could we do better? And McPherson responded, sometimes it seems as if reporters and editors get distracted by publicity stunts and by narratives on Twitter. His example was we get lots of coverage of close the workhouse or too many tiffs, but little coverage of budget busting problems like pension funds in St. Louis City and County. Um, Gilbert, do you think that's a fair criticism? I don't think Twitter's causing that. I think, if anything, it's more there's, there are so many good stories out there. How can you – to Jeanette's, it's just the same thing, having five people. We have a newsroom of a little over 80. That's everybody. That's photographers. That's every – so trying to cover a region, we have to make you choices. Have to make choices. And are there some stories that we sometimes just say we, we don't think we could get the resources to put into that? We have to make choices. With. So there are there good stories that we're missing? Yeah, pension funds or other – but we cover government very well. We've exposed a lot of – we were very aggressive with Sunshine Acts and other things. We've sued this, the state of Missouri, who wouldn't give us information on people seeking medical marijuana licenses, got some information, didn't get everything we wanted. But those are the types of things we try to do. But yes, are there gaps? Because yes, because there's just not as much media as there used to be as many people doing it. Yeah. Let's go to the phone lines. Um, Amanda is calling from St. Louis. Um, Amanda, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I just want to say first that um, Jeanette could write a list of like the names of my family members and I would still read it. She's <laughs> I think the best writer in St. Louis and has been for a long time. I feel exactly um, the same way, so thank you so, for saying that so well. <laughs> uh, my question is, I'm a print journalism Mizzou graduate, and I may have literally been the last year when um, copying and pasting was a physical act, and we waxed up the um, the pages for print. And so I kind of um, finished my schooling and had grown up in the era of sort of news as an authoritative thing that was handed to you or read to you by you know, the great men of network news journalism, all of that. And so I want to know um, what the panel thinks about 
finding a balance between sort of authority and expertise, which um, I have a default to valuing, and that might that's obviously showing with my age and kind of my social status, and as well as involving these community voices and reaching outside of um, of this idea of authority as a handed down thing. How do you make that work in a journalism enterprise? Amanda, that's a great question. Thank you for that. Um, does anyone want to volunteer to take that on? Yeah, I will say this, is that um, I think that is one of the strengths of print media. It is something about holding something in print that gives it a certain amount of authority more so than just you know sharing a, a, a you know, blog post or something that you you know saw on, on Twitter. Um, you know, for an audience, especially an older audience, uh, seeing that in print uh, really means something. And for us, what we try to do is, you know, you talk about the authoritative voices. You know, we try to add context to stories. Uh, we try to look for people from the community that have something to bring to uh, a public discussion uh, and elevate those voices. And I think that's our strength. Let's go back to the phone lines. Um, Tom is calling from Afton. Tom, uh, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Thank you. Yeah, I wanted to give a quick um, shout-out to uh, Don Corrigan, who I guess is the editor-publisher of the South County Times and Kirkwood-Webster Times, which has that hyper-local focus. And the little bit of uh, articles that they do, I think, are very thoughtful about, mm-hmm. uh, like, town council meeting issues and that sort of thing. But my, my question is uh, uh, maybe Mr. French or one of your other guess would would be good on this. Uh, I think there's a real important historical moment occurred here in St. Louis that will definitely be reflected uh, for historians, you know, in, in our in our media. And that is this: during the uh, uh, Ferguson protests, and and then later the protests around the Stockley verdict. Uh, I think I heard maybe st- former state representative Bruce Franks say something to the effect of. This is not your daddy's civil rights movement. And uh, in that first year after uh, Ferguson, um, there was some conflict between the sort of uh, people who are associated with the black church, the NAACP, the Democratic Party establishment, and then the younger generation. And now, uh, six years later, we I think we can see that generational divide line up with the uh, Democratic political candidates. Hmm. When, when Bernie Sanders was here last week or this week, uh, you had Tashar Jones, Cory Bush, uh, Rasheen Aldrich, all up, up there speaking. Tom, uh, Tom, thank you for that. And and yeah, I, I do think there has been somewhat of a shift. I'm wondering how that plays into maybe news consumption, Antonio. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely uh, you know, a, a division there. Um, and if you talk about the, we can get, that's a whole separate discussion about the uh, Democratic nomination there. Uh, but I will say this is that our audience for our print publications, as I spoke about uh, earlier, is different than our audience in social media and in the online. Um, so you, the print publication is an older publication. Uh, but a bit more moderate um, than a lot of the comments and feedback we get from the online and the social media uh, audience. Mm-hmm. So that, I think, is a division there that, we, uh, that we're conscious of. And there is one last clip I wanted to get to today. Um, we asked Liz Miller, the managing editor of the RFT, about how she expects the print landscape to change over the course of the next decade, and, and she expects more upheaval to come. Uh, let's listen. Well, I can tell you that the most recent decade was extremely... Um, challenging for print media. Uh, I think that, you know, looking back even 20 years, you see how much um, that the way we tell stories has had to change. 
And I think we are, you know, slowly slouching toward a digital-only era, at least when we think about local journalism um, and local publications. Uh, And I think that that's something we shouldn't be scared of. You know, I mean, I don't um, work on the sales side, so I don't really want to speak to that, although I know that that presents monetary and monetizing issues. Um, But I really think that our you know, our job as journalists is to tell stories and be of service to our readers. And so if we can find a way to produce content that is of the same quality, um, that is as well reported, which is obviously happening you know, all over this country right now, um, and to still make money at it, which is the crucial portion, um, that we shouldn't be afraid of that change. And that's Liz Miller of the Riverfront Times. Gilbert, do you think the Post-Dispatch will end up moving online only in the next decade? I don't think so entirely. <clears throat> I think there's still going to be an audience for print. Will it be smaller? Probably. That's the, been the trend. And to Antonio's point, there is a very hardcore print audience um, who wants certain things from comics to obituaries to just liking to leaf through. We also have an e-edition of our paper where people can go on their computer and literally leaf through the paper as, as well. So you don't even have to get the print paper. You can get a digital subscription and get that. So there is that ability to do that. You find things that way. The difference when you read online, if you don't, sometimes you miss things. And we go through, you leafing through the paper, whether it's the New York Times or the Post-Dispatch or any other Metro paper, you find things you happen upon that you probably will read and find interest in. So I think that will be around, but we are going to go more digital, and we already are. I mean, we, are, we, we have multimedia. We do podcasts. We do video. We do all these things. that everybody, It's a big part of our business. The information love has not gone away. Mm-hmm. People want it. I think I, I use the analogy of what's happened to the music business. People still want music. How they get it is very different. How we watch movies are very different. People still want information. So I'm, I'm optimistic that people will want that. We have to figure out the business model. Jeanette, uh, Liz said we shouldn't be afraid of this. Do you think she's right about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think print means something you read. I would like to see readers come along even farther. I totally agree with Gilbert. It what I miss is that browsing, that happenstance, catching on to something. And I need to make myself do those flip-through things just so I can have that experience. But, no, I think the act of reading is what matters because it lets you do it at your own pace and it lets you think and it gives you more information on a single topic generally and you can go deeper. You can create a world that people can meet halfway imaginatively and that's a lot less passive than just sitting in front of a screen or even, excuse me, listening. (laughs) (laughs) One last question in what is our last minute or so here is a huge question and that is, do you think with social media driving so much we're all sort of retreating to our own little echo chambers? How can we find or, or make people engage with news that doesn't just conform to the point of view they're coming in with. Anyone have the solution on that? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think a lot of these questions uh, are, are related. You know, so it, this is not exclusive to journalism. You know, it's really a business question. You're seeing the same thing in music and in movies. You know, people are just consuming things in different ways. You know, some people are watching movies on their phones. Some people still want to go to a theater. Uh, I, I think one of the advantages of print as well, though, is that you get to see a lot of different stories, a lot of information, all accumulated in the same place and can filter through it that way versus almost like uh, instead of an album, the single consumption in music industry where you're just consuming singles. Uh, I think it does 
uh, it does help to have context. Mm-hmm. And so when you put your stories in print, laid out in a certain way, it, 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 it's consumed differently. And so I don't think we should be, going back to the earlier question, I don't think we should be afraid of that. We should embrace that people are consuming things in different ways, and there's audience, there's just different audiences, and we, we have to satisfy all of their needs. And maybe people listening today will feel inspired to support their local newspaper, whether that's a hyper-local one or uh, a book of essays or the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. So Antonio French of the North Sider and the South Sider, thank you for joining you. us today. Jeanette Cooperman of The Common Reader, thank you for being here. Thank you. And St. Louis Post-Dispatch editor Gilbert Bylon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWNU.